0: I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air, and this is the weekly briefing for the week ending October 22nd. When it comes to renewable energy systems, there are three main energy sources that companies have tried to exploit recently. The sun, the wind, and ocean waves. Solar panels are now practically everywhere. Wind turbine installations are becoming more common on land and out at sea. What we haven't seen much of, however, is wave power. The new wave in energy might be wave energy, though. Columbia Power Technologies is one of the companies commercializing wave energy systems. We'll talk with the company's CEO, along with the president of Northwest Power, a Vicor company that provides power electronic subsystems to Columbia Power. Also in this episode, an interview with Gianluca Pisnello, Chief Operating Officer at First Light Fusion. Several companies have recently made great leaps suggesting commercial fusion power might truly be possible, and First Light is one of them. And as a bonus... A brief chat with NXP CTL Lars Rieger. Before we get to our interviews, here's a quick rundown of some of the stories you can find in EE Times this week. Wide band gap semiconductors such as gallium nitride and silicon carbide are in the process of replacing silicon, nowhere more so than in power electronics but they are also highly appropriate when radiation-hardened devices are required. This week, we have an interview with Alex Lido, CEO of Efficient Power Conversion Corporation. Lido is one of the leading advocates of wide bandgap materials, and we talked to him about their use in space applications. The entire industrial world has long depended largely on startups to come up with new technologies and Demonstrate that their innovations have commercial promise. Two different startups picked up some significant investment last week. One was AI chip designer Hilo, which attracted $136 million in yet another big money round for the company. Another was Pragmatic Semiconductor, which collected $80 million it will use to build a new, fast, operationally efficient factory for what it's calling fab as a service. If you're already on this podcast episode's webpage, look to your left, you'll see links to all of these stories. Or you can go straight to eetimes.com where you can find these stories along with all of our other coverage. Did your company produce a particularly innovative design this year? Enter it in the product of the year competition held by our sister publication, Electronic Products. This is one of the most prestigious product awards in the industry for several reasons. The competition includes all of your fiercest business rivals. This is also one of the most enduring product of the year awards in the industry. This will be our 46th year. What's an innovative product? Something completely new? Yes, but it might also be something old that's been improved to have superior performance characteristics. You know what? Achieving a new standard in price performance is also certainly an innovation. There's a link to the submission form on this podcast episode webpage, or go straight to the Electronic Products website, which is right where you'd expect to find it, at electronicproducts.com. The deadline for submissions is November 1st. Winners will be announced in January. The world is turning to renewable energy. Not fast enough, not yet, but it is happening. The classic renewable is hydropower. If it was easy to get away with building enormous dams everywhere, we'd have done it already. And that is why the world is turning to a new set of renewables, primarily solar, wind, and wave energy. All renewables have a unique combination of benefits and drawbacks. So far, solar and wind are being used fairly extensively. Solar panels power everything from toys to people's homes. Wind turbine farms are sending energy to the grid. Wave power has yet to be widely commercialized, but it remains of interest for several reasons. Some of those reasons are obvious. For example, solar works only during the day and not quite as well with cloud cover, while waves keep coming night and day and regardless of clouds. Less obvious is that wave energy has the potential to produce more power with less infrastructure. In terms of peak density, for example, if solar and wind both measure somewhere around a kilowatt per meter square, wave energy comes in at about 25 kilowatts per meter square. No matter the metric used for comparison, the numbers for wave energy are frequently at least 10 times better than those for solar or wind. The upshot is that it could be potentially more practical to scale up to megawatts with wave energy than it is with solar or wind. By one estimate, there might be roughly 2 terawatts of power available to be harvested from the world's coastal waters. Another very obvious advantage wave energy has is when it comes to ocean applications. If you want to power something far out at sea, you can rely on the presence of waves, not quite everywhere all the time, but close enough. This is where Columbia Power Technologies comes in. Columbia Power, or CPOWER for short, produces three different sized wave energy generators up through the kilowatt range that can also include energy storage along with data and communication services. We spoke with Rinst Leesman, CEO of CPOWER. And with Bill Schmitz, the president of Northwest Power, a part of Vicor that makes specialty power supplies, including the ones found in Sea powers wave energy systems. Brent, could you explain to us and our listeners what wave energy is and how you actually harvest it?
1: Sure. And thanks for for having me, Brian, on the podcast today. So wave energy or let's say ocean renewable energy um, encompasses a number of different resources within the ocean. There, there's waves on the top. You can have ocean current like the, like the Gulf Stream. Uh, there's a salinity gradient. There, there's a lot of different ways to uh, extract energy out of the ocean.
0: I wanted to talk about implementation and we've got Bill here. Bill, talk to me about what some of the technological challenges are in enabling this stuff. First off, tell me about Vicor, tell me about Northwest Power, and then let's talk about some of
2: the implementation challenges. All right. So Vicor is a manufacturer of very dense and efficient power conversion components, a wide array of types of components and and types of power conversion. Northwest Power, we're a subsidiary of Vicor. Uh, I've been here for, I think I started this 27 or 28 years ago with Vicor, or early in Vicor history, actually. And what we do is use Vicor technology in with a mixture of circuits and and know-how to uh, develop relatively unique uh, power supplies for, for applications. Obviously, C-Power is unique, so uh, it fit well.
0: What's unique about it? I mean, what what is it about wave power? Uh, Is is it the fact that it's that it's intermittent? Is it the fact that it's got to be environmentally protected because you're you're working in a? I mean, seawater is pretty harsh, right? Electronics, I imagine.
2: It is. So if you you know don't discount what what Sea Power did, there's a huge amount of analysis. You know, understand it, and then electromechanical design, uh, which resulted in something that is fed to me which is essentially a pulse of power that kind of looks like the wave so if you i suspect if you took a picture of the wave and looked at the power pulse or energy pulse that i get they would be somewhat similar but in power conversion the uh you know you you regulate the output somehow correct power whatever based on the input voltage and generally speaking if you have to go over maybe more like a than four to one input range, you know, ten to forty volts, or one hundred to four hundred, or two hundred. You know, that's normal. Well, this energy pulse that's coming from the generators is a very low frequency pulse that goes from zero to something relatively high, hundreds of volts, hmm. back down to zero throughout its entire period of time, and and the period could be over seconds. So, uh, and, and then furthermore, throughout that pulse, there's more and less amount of energy at any given time. So so in order to try to convert this pulse into something useful and organized, which essentially is a current source into, into energy storage devices, um, the trick is to figure out how to extract that energy all the way from nearly no voltage into all the way up to maybe upwards of 400 volts mm-hmm. and produce a constant current into a storage device. And then... Control that current, so we increase or decrease the amount of current, depending on the pulse and depending on the need. So that you know, if you think about loops, there's a lot of loops in there to try to control the whole thing. But that was easy for you, right? That was a piece of cake. I had that. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the big trick is to figure out how to use as much standard components, power converting components from Vicor Uh, because they're very efficiency and high-frequency switching. And and the the better you can apply those, the the more efficient and controlled you can be, and smaller, too, Uh, because, you know, we we can't be huge. And and a big trick was to figure out the efficiency. Now, over this huge, wide input range of voltage, essentially, um, you know, it's not that easy to get super high efficiency. On the other hand, as it turns out, the super high efficiency is really needed when there's a lot of power. So as long as we can control it, so when we're, when we're transferring a lot of power, we're very efficient. And when we're transferring a minimal amount of power, we stay operational. We still produce current. We still convert the energy and and um, deal with the, the efficiency fallout at the lower power range.
0: So are the C-Power products as refined as they possibly get as electromechanical systems, Basically my question is what challenge what technological challenges are left? Is there a, a, any fundamental challenges or are we talking about technological refinements? And uh, maybe that's a question for Renst and maybe the question also applies to the interface between this electromechanical system that C power is making and whatever Vicor Northwest power is providing. So I, I can start with
1: with that. You know, one of the one of the major challenges is, as I mentioned earlier, and I think Bill refers to, is is creating a system that is agnostic to the end use case. We don't care whether it's a static asset, it's a, or whether it's a a mobile asset. You know, the goal is to create cleaned condition power in order to keep an asset running in addition to providing a data content I mean effectively we're we're because we can provide power in a, in, a, in a data connection we're bringing the cloud to the sea floor a cloud to the to the sea surface where there is no connection available as far as challenges go we'll, we'll, there's always work to make the system you know better stronger faster more efficient uh, again as, as bill was referring to but we've got um, a system that, again, is going for its pre-commercial application demonstration off the coast of Hawaii this uh, th- this fall, later this fall. And, you know, that that's ready to go. Um, where we head from there is going to deeper water. You know, being able to deploy in the Gulf of Mexico where you're talking about thousands of meters of water. And there's an intense need today to bring power um to operations in, in in deeper water. And there's also an intense need to be able to leave these systems out for, for years at a time. So they have to be marinized, uh, they have to be um, made survivable and reliable and efficient. Um, so we'll we'll always be ready to make it better. Um, but you know we're hitting the market today. We've, we're, we're actually producing two systems. Viacore has produced two sets of power electronics for us. One, a full-scale two-kilowatt system, and then one that's about three-quarter scale. Both of those units are in validation testing now. So I think that just underscores you know, where we are that we're able to start producing uh, multiple units um, heading out the door here to customers pretty soon.
0: I love the word marinized, uh, which you were probably forced to use because marinated had been taken. (laughs) (laughs) We
1: don't want anything to marinate, for sure. So, um, marinized is definitely the way we want to go.
0: And and Bill, I mean, uh, do do you have, uh, what are the next technological challenges for you? You had already earlier said, talking about making things more efficient, is there anything about interfacing with the electrical mechanical systems that C-Power is having?
2: And then figuring out where the efficiencies are. So I think it starts with what is next from the C-Power Electromechanical. Because I, uh, I I can't possibly predict what they might ask me to do next. <laughs> but When they do ask, then I will figure it out. Res, we'll talk about this, okay? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I'm... I'm
1: I'm sure when we first brought this to 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 Bill and to Vicor that they weren't um, it wasn't at the top of their mind, but they've done a, a great job in in helping us solve the problem, so we're, we're we're excited about the relationship.
2: yeah, it was a it was an interesting question when they when they first approached me. I had no idea how you would think about doing it, but you know the good news is I do a lot of weird things, and and the weirder it is, the more interesting it is to me. Just to underscore that, what we're getting ready to do off the coast of Hawaii
1: um, with our system, which obviously contains the ViCore components, and we're going to be running a subsea autonomous vehicle and multiple data gathering systems on the seafloor. That's never been done on an ex- with an ex- with a renewable energy device, with a wave energy device uh, offshore. So that's it's groundbreaking stuff, um, and you know that's an exciting part of it. I mean, it's it's exciting for all of us to be able to bring a new renewable resource really to to mainstream um, uh, commercial markets, research markets, defense and security markets also. So that's a that's exciting, but it's new. We are breaking new ground here.
0: I want to go back to one of the specific applications you alluded to earlier. Um, I was absolutely fascinated to hear about Microsoft putting data centers underwater um it's not like you know the steel industry doesn't say hey let's put a foundry under the atlantic that's not something that normally happens it seemed exotic to me Um, i don't expect you to talk about microsoft itself but i'm guessing that you've at least looked at the phenomenon of underwater data centers and what some of their special needs might be and whether by, you know, whether sea power can, can, uh, uh, you know, can play a role. Can I ask you to talk about what you know about what that is? Yes. Yeah, so project Natic, um that
1: Microsoft uh, did, it, it's an interesting approach. So the, the goal for putting a data center under the water is really to save The air conditioning budget, you know, data centers consume a a tremendous amount of power and a big portion of that. And maybe you or Bill know what Mm -hmm. the percentage is, but a big portion of that is to keep the equipment cool. So part of the goal for putting something on a data center on on the seafloor is to help reduce that that cooling budget because the the seawater is naturally going to keep that system um, at, a, at a reasonable and, and, and cool temperature, and it's easier to dissipate any of the heat that, that may come off of that. So we find that's an incredibly exciting application. And yes, that that's really where you start thinking about megawatt scale systems, whether you're running that, that, that deep sea um, or that sea bottom data center, or you're trying to remove a diesel genset from uh, from an offshore fish farm, or that's running power, you know, for for a village. Again, it, you're you're a bit agnostic to what that end use is, but but we love that 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 type of application, and it's definitely going to come. I mean, that, it just makes a tremendous amount of sense. So you'll definitely see that uh, happening more and more as we go forward.
0: The nature of wave energy, it seems to be as good as you can get. Um, I've seen some people complain about when you put a, a wave generator near shore. Some versions of these are supposedly quite loud. There are all sorts of concerns about. I, I mean, even wind energy seems like it would be an easy thing, but the "not in my backyard" thing, having these big giant turbines, you know, rolling and you know, off on top of the hill or offshore. There's always something. What's the something with with wave generators? That's a it's a good question. And you know, noise
1: uh, is is certainly always a concern. Uh, are you disturbing you know mammals or fish, um, birds with making too much noise? Um, you know, we've intentionally designed our system to avoid that type of problem. In fact, we had a we had a system in in Puget Sound for 13 months, and they went out to measure the the, the noise, and they couldn't distinguish our system from the background noise from shipping and you know waves themselves. It when you have storms, it's a very noisy place um, uh, in in general. So you really, at least with our system, you can't distinguish it very well from from what's going on normally. Um, but sure, I- I- anything has a trade-off, um, but I- if we are if the world is moving away from carbon, then we need to figure out ways that can reliably and consistently and efficiently supplement or provide primary power. And you know from our perspective, wave energy for all those reasons that we've talked about already is is a great resource. So it, it, there's a trade-off in everything, just like you said.
0: What haven't I asked about that uh, is interesting, funky about wave energy? One of the things that's that's interesting,
1: and this is part of the issue that that Viacor has helped us solve, is because it's an intermittent resource, um, whoever our customer is, they don't really care about that. What they care about is power and that their asset, whatever it may be, can run consistently and reliably. And, and, and part of the issue is you know, we always have to keep energy storage um, somewhere between us and the asset. Uh, we can run the, the asset on a uh, on a normal basis, but maybe we're sending too much power down the line and, and and we need to move part of that to the battery or it's flat outside and so the asset needs to live off the battery And one of the things that we do to help customers get over that hump, get over that uh, that uh, range anxiety if you will of how do I have an intermittent resource that can keep something going for five years is, you know, we can look at a site and we can pull 20 or 30 years of, of uh, historical data and we can configure a system between capacity, generation capacity, energy storage capacity, to say, look, over the last 30 years with this specific configuration, the battery would have gotten below 40% state of charge three times. But if we boost up the battery storage a little bit, then you know, then we can assure you, based on historical data, that it won't. Your system won't go down, and I think that is that's a leap that people haven't quite made yet. I think that's an interesting thing that that everyone's starting to understand now is that you can look at what's going on, and configure the system and design it right. And the nice thing about our system, it's very scalable, so we can do that, and you can ensure that somebody's piece of kit's going to run. Um, uh, for however long they need it to run, whether that's months or quarters or, 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 or years. Months,
0: quarters, or years is a good place to end. Thank you very much, Rinsd. Thank you, Bill. You bet. Thank you. It's great. You were just listening to Rinst Leisman, CEO of Power, and Bill Schmitz, President of Vicor Subsidiary Northwest Power. During our conversation, we mentioned Project Natick. A quick note on how that turned out. Microsoft built a 40-foot-long tube and loaded it with 12 racks containing a total of 864 servers and sank it into the North Sea off Scotland. Power was sourced from a nearby land-based wind farm. Microsoft reports that the servers in the submerged data center showed a failure rate one-eighth that of its land-based control group. The company is continuing with Project Natick. Finding clean sources of energy is imperative, and while renewables like wave energy and solar and wind power are going to be increasingly versatile and useful, if there's a holy grail for clean energy, it is probably fusion power. Every fixed light in the night sky assures us fusion is possible, but no one has ever been able to sustain a fusion reaction on Earth, however. It's been decades, and minimal progress was made until just this past year, when several different companies and research groups began to make extraordinary leaps that seem to indicate that commercial fusion power just might be possible sooner rather than later. First Light Fusion is one of those companies. It recently finalized the construction of a device it calls the Big Gun. How big is it? It is roughly 72 feet long and it weighs well over 25 tons. What will it be used for? The company has a unique approach to fusion power generation and it starts by firing a projectile at 20 times the speed of sound at a fusion target. First Light's approach is based on inertial confinement seeking to subject the fusion fuel to extremely high compression in a very short time and then use the inertia of the fuel itself to maintain those conditions long enough to trigger the fusion reaction. Maurizio De Paolo Emilio is the editor-in-chief of Power Electronics News and a contributing editor to E.E. E. Times. Here he is with Gianluca Pisanello, chief operating officer at First Light Fusion.
3: Let's start with the concept of uh, fusion. What are the features that uh, can make fusion energy a reality? Uh, How does a fusion reactor work? And uh, from your experience, from your point of view, why do you think uh, this is an important energy resources for for the planet?
4: Absolutely. Thank you. Fusion is, in, in a nutshell, in a very small nutshell, fusion is the process that generates energy by uh, fusing, by putting together two light atoms to make uh, a, a slightly heavier one. And uh, in this process, a neutron is also generated, which carries a lot of energy. Now, in contrast, the current nuclear energy uh, uses a, uh, the, the opposite concept Uh, They start from a very heavy atom and they split it. And when when you split a heavy atom, you also get energy. When you fuse very light atoms, uh, you also get energy and you actually get more, uh, more energy. Now, this is a little bit counterintuitive but in this short time uh, I I can't really explain that uh, but the physics work in, in fact in exactly in this way uh, when you when you have heavy atoms you get energy by splitting them and when you have uh, light atoms you get energy by by fusing them this process the process of fusion is what happens uh, uh, at any time in the stars uh, obviously in, including the sun so the energy coming from the sun is uh, is fusion energy uh, in fact uh, the reason why fusion is so attractive, uh, is because it has a series of very, very important benefits. Uh, first of all, it's, is clean. Uh, it's, it's, it's absolutely clean energy. Uh, the amount of raw material is, uh, practically, uh, limitless. You only need, uh, uh water for the deuterium. And then you need lithium in order for the um, reactor to then uh, produce the other component that you need for the fuel, which is tritium. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, unlike unlike uh, current nuclear, it, it also uh, does not have a lot of, of the uh, negative aspects. Uh, for example, in a fusion reactor, you cannot have uh, uh, meltdown events uh, like uh, Fukushima or Chernobyl. Yeah. Uh, so you cannot have catastrophic events because in a, in a fission reactor, in a, so in a nuclear reactor, current nuclear reactor, uh, you have to put an enormous amount of effort for the reaction to not run away, to not become explosive in a way. Whereas in a fusion reactor, uh, you have to put an enormous amount of effort for the reaction to actually continue. As soon as there is an interference, something that doesn't work, by its own physics, the, the process automatically stops. It's not it's not a chain reaction that that tends to that wants to continue and grow. Um, the other big difference with, with, with nuclear is that uh, uh, nuclear waste, which is a major a major issue for 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 nuclear, is uh, uh, Orders of magnitude smaller problem with uh, with fusion uh, f- um, nuclear. Uh, the radioactive waste uh, in fusion uh, is uh, short lived. Uh, we talk decades rather than tens of thousands of years, as it is in uh, nuclear. And uh, they are typically of low of intermediate level waste. Uh, so there's no high level waste uh, uh, which does happen in uh, in uh, in nuclear. And finally, you, you cannot use uh products that you find in a fusion reactor to make nuclear weapons uh, again unlike in current nuclear this way this makes fusion extremely more uh attractive uh, than uh, than uh, nuclear and obviously extremely more attractive than uh, than uh uh, uh polluting uh, source of energy sources of energy
3: yeah. So let's let's move into your technology. Your technology is based on uh, an inertial confinement. So can you tell me more? What is the the most critical step in this uh, fusion? And uh, so the main challenges. The main challenges to achieve uh, so a commercial uh, step for for fusion for everyone.
4: Absolutely. Uh, the, the approaches to fusion, uh, the, the two mainstream approaches to fusion, uh, they differ mostly on, on how they contain uh, the so-called plasma. Um, in order to achieve fusion, you need extremely high temperatures. Uh, we talk uh, in the order of 100 million degrees. Uh, now, obviously, uh, containing that uh, that uh, uh, material uh, matter at that temperature is is a big challenge. And this is where the two two different approaches uh, um, uh, differ. One is called the, the magnetic fusion, where basically they use like a magnetic field, so a magnetic bottle to hold this plasma. And the other approach, which is ours, is called inertial fusion. So what we do uh, in, in inertial fusion is basically we try to make the process happen so quickly so to bring the fuel at that extreme temperature and extreme pressures as well, so quickly that by its own inertia, the plasma doesn't have the time to relax. It doesn't have the time to cool down before mm-hmm. the fusion reaction actually happens. Uh, this approach, uh, which is also one of the mainstream approaches uh, that the most famous, probably, uh, laboratory uh, research in inertial fusion is the National Ignition Facility uh, uh, in California. It's a U- it's a United States national lab. Uh, we have a, 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 we we use a, a different approach for the same uh, branch of, of of fusion research. Uh, it has a very uh, many, our approach, which is based on projectiles, has many advantages that they all stem from the fact that we can keep the expensive and sophisticated bits of the plant away from the reaction happens. And this they, it brings a lot of advantage in, in, advantages in terms of maintenance and lifing of the plant.
0: Yeah,
3: good. So in terms of fusion, we have a lot of uh, investment into the research and development of this uh, new energy. So you can tell me more in this case. So a lot of investment that uh, will drive a more realistic view of this technology uh, to provide reliable uh, electricity. So from from your point of view, from your experience, how do you see the future of energy and where you suggest uh, to challenge to have uh, any fusion energy for, for the market?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, since since uh, uh, like I said, I joined uh, in, at the beginning of, at the beginning of 2016, and and since then it has been a, a, a very very exciting time to to be in uh, in, in this sector. Uh, there is more and more uh, interest uh, both from private entities and from uh, and from uh, yeah. from public investment point of view, and not only in terms of money, uh, but also in terms of uh, governments actually pushing forwards to, uh, develop a, a regulatory framework for, for, for fusion. So fusion is really coming. It, it, it's real. Governments talk about it. Private investors talk about it. There is, there is a, 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 a relatively big number of, of private enterprises researching in the field. So this is super exciting. Uh, why do we do that? Uh, we do that because, uh, uh, we, strongly believe, and at, with First Light, we have also commissioned a, a, a study to understand the fusion, the, the energy market in, uh, in 2040. And we strongly believe that we, while we should develop and continue to deploy uh, renewable solutions at the maximum possible pace, uh, we, we know that uh, there will be, if we don't find a, a clean Form of base load energy, so something that works day in, day out, day and night. Uh, we will have a gap in uh, in terms of how much energy we can provide uh, with with renewables only. So that gap is is huge. By twenty forty, uh, even with uh, an aggressive scenario of uh, renewables deployment, which we we all advocate for, we will still have uh, uh, we will still be able to cover about half of the projected demand of electricity. So this is why developing a clean baseload technology like Fusion is fundamentally important. And uh, and like I said, uh, governments and uh, and private investors now uh, really understand this.
3: Yeah, totally agree. Thanks a lot, Chaluga. It's been a pleasure to talk with you about uh, Fusion. Thank you.
4: Thank you very much, Maurizio, for inviting me and uh, all the best.
0: That was EE e. Times editor Maurizio Paolo Emilio with Gianluca Pisanello, Chief Operating Officer at First Light Fusion. A couple of weeks ago, EE e. Times held its AI Everywhere virtual conference with tracks on Edge AI, Tiny ML, and AI in the Data Center. Keynote speakers included executives from IBM Research, NXP, ABI Research, Edge Impulse, iMac, and many more. If you missed it, all of the AI Everywhere content is now available on demand, including the keynote presentations, technical talks, and panel discussions. It's all available on demand at www.ai-everywhereforum.com. It's there until the end of October. There's a link to it on this podcast episode's webpage. Lars Rieger is the Chief Technology Officer of NXP Semiconductors. He's been an occasional guest on this podcast. Nitin Dahad is the Editor in Chief of Embedded.com and a contributing editor to EE Times. He caught up with Rieger a little over a week ago, just before the ITS World Congress held at the end of last week. This is a show for transportation infrastructure and transportation technology. That includes vehicle-to-vehicle communications and vehicle-to-infrastructure communications. The nerd hand for that is V2X. The two had a wide-ranging conversation about smart cars and smart cities. Here are Nitten and Lars. You're
5: specifically showing how the V2X is already being deployed or is deployed. I mean, using e-bikes as an example, is that right?
6: Yes, so uh, of course we are we are trying to show how you uh, in an optimal way do smart traffic management, and you have heard us talking a a lot in in the past years about um, uh, how can we use our car to car communication or V two X technology to smoothen traffic flows, uh, have cars talking to each other, cars to traffic lights. So how how the infrastructure uh, around us is managed in an in an optimal way, and what we are doing here in Hamburg is we are also showing how, for example, uh, uh, bicycle riders. scooter drivers um, uh, can can be seen uh, by the other systems around them uh, to avoid accidents. Now, it is the same uh, silicon, the same hardware, same software, but of course, on very different means of transportation. uh, And and that is a a pretty, pretty cool use case, especially because there is um, uh, e-bicycles, Uh, to a very, very big portion, uh, uh, of course, uh, becoming visible in our cities. Uh, E-bicycles are the most used electric vehicles in Europe already today, Mm. and they are uh, accounting for a pretty high uh, amount of of, um, uh, severe accidents, simply because people are not used to the the, uh, acceleration speed uh, or or, or different behaviors Mm. uh, in in the normal traffic patterns. So having already a bicycle with a battery but it's of course the perfect landing place to to put two or three chips uh, next to the battery and transmit. Hey, I'm a vulnerable road user. I'm here. Please all pay attention. And this is what we do.
5: Okay. Now, taking it a little bit wider, I think we talked. Uh, I think you're talking about. Um, uh, beyond yeah, the smart traffic management and some of the scenarios that you can see um, at ITS, but also uh, some of the examples. And I think you talked about smart parking and but right. various other things. Can you just give us some examples of what is is uh, doable and what's going to be shown and maybe some visionary
6: stuff as well? Yeah, so what you see already today is, I mean, we have, for example, uh, Volkswagen cars, uh, series uh, uh, production cars, uh, so the Golf 8 or the ID uh, 3 and 4 uh, that are already fully equipped with uh, these V2X technologies. Uh, we have uh, complete cities uh, already um, uh, that are rolling out at every traffic light uh, this V2X um, um, uh, technology so that the traffic lights and the cars can talk. Um, you have bus acceleration that you can see here, truck Road train forming, so where multiple trucks are are uh, 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 getting connected together. So the first truck is is basically driving, and the others are following as virtual trailers. Mm-hmm. And what you're seeing is now the, the rollout in the in the e-bikes. But the very honestly, the most sexy use case that I have seen uh, uh, here and that I'm looking forward to next week. Um, plus, also a, a use case that we can implement as of today is smart valet parking. So you bring right. your car. To the parkhouse, you get off the uh, car, and the the parkhouse system takes over your vehicle, manages it via V2X technology and cameras in the building, and then um, the car gets uh, driven autonomously into the parkhouse, is washed there, is charged there and is parked. Uh, And of course, if you want to have it back, you uh, just tell your your mobile phone or or, uh, the parking system, uh, get me my car uh, back out. And this autonomous valet parking system uh, uh, brings you uh, your car back. That is a technology that we have already today. We are installing it in in a couple of park houses here uh, in Germany uh, already. And that is, of course, hopefully changing the the appearance of our smart cities in the coming years. eh?
5: Right. that does rely on the car having v2x is
6: that right yeah so that uh, that is using v2x technology at the moment uh, simply because this is a very ruggedized robust means of communication i mean you you know that there is a lot of steel and concrete of course in these parking houses so yes. you need to rely of course on robust uh, signal uh, exchange and um, uh, uh, also delay-free um, um, uh, signal exchange. And that is what car-to-car communication 802.11p was made for initially. And, of course, uh, what you're doing is uh, you then need to have a car that is that is uh, uh, equipped with a drive-by wire system so that the electronics can steer uh, and, and break and accelerate but that's it uh, and, and on that simple uh, uh, smallest common technical denominator uh, we can we can uh, equip the use case and uh, some of the of the partners Ford for example uh, Continental Copernicus some other companies here they are helping of course uh, uh, installing these, these use cases
5: one of the things I think was uh, quite important actually is um, you know, you're going to be generating lots of data and um, you're not sort of sending that data somewhere because it's a mesh network. That's yes. p
6: is basically enabling that data to stay within that locality. Yeah, very honestly, when we all talk about mesh networks in our Wi-Fi systems in our houses, I mean, this year what we are talking about, these 802.11p 2 x networks are since 10 years, uh, maybe the, 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 the broadest range, really in, in terms of meters in distance, broadest range mesh networks uh, that you can think of. And if you have an entire traffic system in a city as a mesh network, uh, that's, a, that's a pretty cool technical thing. And uh, yeah, it, it shows also how, how you can implement it very robustly and what the benefits for a smart city are. You save a lot of uh, 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 concrete and and uh, uh, road works. Um, uh, you don't need acceleration lanes, uh, but you can have smart electronics managing the traffic flow in an optimized way in the city. Yes, I think
5: um, that's that sort of smart city concept where the, the dream of being able to manage everything very cleverly and changing the, the, the cycles of the traffic signals, for example.
6: Uh, uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, if you're talking about smart devices around us if you're talking about the world that anticipates and automates for basically the the which has been your mantra for a while now (laughs) that's it i mean yeah yeah, and indeed and of course it takes also quite a while that's a good point it takes of course also a while to have the infrastructure and the vehicles adapting to the technology so we as techies we talk about it since a decade maybe and the dreams are there to bring it into realization we just see happening now we see our houses very quickly become smart homes. Uh, we have uh, voice assistants, all of these type of, of, of things around us. We see the cars getting more and more connected and becoming more smart. Uh, and of course, also the infrastructure in our cities. But the automotive and the infrastructure investment cycles, they are uh, not uh, not like in consumer electronics. That takes you five, eight, 10 years to renew the technology. And this is why it also takes quite some some years to see that.
5: And just like, lastly, I mean, vision of yes, this, what you're going to be showing at ITS is not just here now, but also a vision of what smart cities will look like in 30 to 40 years. I think you you talked about that a little bit.
6: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you just imagine that now what you see here in in different uh, showcases uh, is coming together and is merging uh, into into one, uh, let's say, seamless experience, city experience, that of course starts changing the appearance of the city itself again. How much parking space do you need? How wide do the streets need to be? How is your traffic management systems over the different traffic lights? Do you need to do different road constructions or can you avoid that? Do you have acceleration lanes for bicycles and so on? That all will over time change, of course, significantly the uh, the uh, setup of how, how cities will look like. Uh, and uh, that is what you're gonna see. Takes again, 20 years plus maybe uh, to see the reaction of the city to the technology, but it's going to come. Lars, thank you very much. My pleasure.
0: That was EE Times editor Nitin Dahad with Lars Rieger, CTO of NXP. And that concludes this episode of The Weekly Briefing. Thank you for listening. We have this podcast, The Weekly Briefing, and we have three others. Power Up is hosted by Maritziel. That's about power electronics. Embedded Edge is about embedded technologies. The host is Nitin. We also have the Artificial Intelligence Podcast with Sally Ward Foxton. All of these podcasts are available through iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. But if you go to our website at eetimes.com podcasts, you'll find all of these podcasts with each episode also accompanied by a transcript, along with links and other multimedia. The Weekly Briefing is produced by E.E. Times. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.